time around we're going to be talking about Paradise Alley. It's Sylvester Stallone's directorial debut from 1978. Also starring Stallone, written by Stallone, and the theme tune sung by Stallone. It's based on a novel written by Sylvester Stallone, <laughs> which was based on another script written by Sylvester Stallone. It's his, not vanity project, but the project that you get to make after a massive hit, which obviously in his case was Rocky. It's the story of three brothers struggling in post-Second World War New York. The lazy schemer, the tragic educated brother, and the good-hearted... Man-mountain. Good-hearted man-child, man-mountain, as they find their way through crime-ridden post-war Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. Is that... That's, yeah, kind of, that's kind of it, yeah. Yeah, I think you sort of nailed it. I can detect the uh, lack of enthusiasm. No, I was for just this, trying to uh, this movie in your trying voice. To corral this this very strange, uneven film into a plot. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump straight in and say I first saw this film when I was nine years old, and my affection for it is still that childlike forgiveness of right. uh, all the things that that are wrong with it because of all the things I love about it. So uh, I guess I'll be in the in the blue corner. I'll be fighting for. Paradise Alley. That's weird. I thought it was... So, some deep background on Shane. He he used to be an avid Stallone fan. I am still a Stallone fan. You know, I forgive him some of his awful choices. But he was one of your kind of gateway people into movies, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. totally. Yeah, I saw um, Rocky and Rocky 2 and Paradise Alley in the same year. In fact, I think maybe it just went straight to TV here. Because it flopped in the States, like, massively. Jerry Zeisman, who was... Stallone's AD on Rocky Two when um, Paradise Alley was released, and he was saying like thousands of people would come to the set every day to watch Stallone filming Rocky Two, but none of them went to the theater to see Paradise Alley. And, mm. and he was saying slide to that quite quite hard. Do you? Know, I mean, is there anything about the making of the movie that 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 you know? Um, it's more, I think, anecdotal stuff as you're going through scene by scene who the, the kind of actors are and how. You know, some of the people that Sly's working with in this carry on as collaborators all the way through. Mm. You know, there's there's something quite nice about the loyalty, even if you know the execution isn't there as a filmmaker. I think there's definitely that sort of band of brothers aspect to his career, which is quite nice. I suppose that that carries through to Amanda Sante being in it, and also um, the horrible Ray Starkey's in it too. And they they both they all work together on Lords of Flatbush. Yeah, well, I I've seen Lords of Flatbush a couple of times, and I can never see Armand Asante in the film. He's yes. supposed to be in the wedding at the end, Good. but God knows where he is. But also Sly and Asante played brothers again in Dread. Oh, God, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, he's one of the director video kings. Yeah, I mean, what's his kind of highlights? Is it Q&A? Is he in that with... Uh... Yeah, but I don't like his performance in that either. I had a look through his IMDb and you assume that he would have started out strong and then kind of, you know, graduated down to director video the way that some unfortunate... Careers do, I just realised I've got notes here on like loads of notes on every other actor, and I just wrote Armand Asante's name down and didn't bother googling or. <laughs> but it all seems quite quite low key, you know, quite small releases, and yeah, then yeah. you know eventually become. I don't know. I we talked about him before being uh, in the Juice, and that was the kind of he plays Franco's dad, doesn't he? That was yeah a half decent performance. Yeah, I don't know. There's a vanity about him that I don't like. <laughs> I I feel that he feels cruel to say it, especially putting it out into the world, but this is just an opinion podcast, so, you know, yeah, you've got to state your opinion. Your opinion yeah. 
I just feel there's like a, a weird sort of vanity and entitlement, as if he somehow feels going into a character that that he's on a par with like a Pacino or any oh, of his right, kind okay. of peers. And what did you think about this as his kind of debut? I liked him earlier in the film when he was low key, mm-hmm. but again, you know, if you, I, I can imagine, it's like watching a play with somebody who wants to be, be a movie star in it, doing what they feel is the appropriate movie sure, star sure. performance, but it's not actually getting into the character or mm. doing anything more than being a a performance yeah, it doesn't right. feel particularly honest or true. So you don't think he puts the work in to make that transition between the two sides of the character. Well, I think he's. I, I don't think there's anything he could do in this because the the transition literally happens at the snap of the fingers within a montage. But yeah, after one fight, <laughs> he's suddenly changed yeah, character. It's, it's, you know, I think you see the foundations here of Sly's work as a montage filmmaker. Yeah. I don't know. Have you even seen Rocky IV? Uh, yes, I have. That's one of the ones I've seen. Yeah, I've seen one, two, and four. It's basically like seven montages strung together. <laughs> <laughs> so you were fond of it as a nine-year-old, and you've stayed with it throughout your life. I mean, how did you feel coming to it now with a slightly more critical eye? Uh, I'd say the the critic was in the back seat, <laughs> and, I, and I just sat there and had that same kind of pleasurable uh, experience that I, I had as a a nine year old. But I think my nine year old brain was definitely in the driving seat. So, right. you know, and I brought like some other references to the experience. So, you know, looking at Laszlo Kovacs's work on this, I was just I was blown away by it. I think yes. it's really beautiful. And a couple of years ago, I saw an exhibition at, at the RA, and it was uh, George Bellows, the painter, mm. uh, and some of his like New York paintings from the 1920s of boxers falling out of the ring, and you know these sort of big burly men battling in 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 the uh, you know the square circle of the gladiators' arenas of these backstreet bars. It feels like that must have been a, a reference for Kovacs in this, because that's what a lot of the pictures, especially the big climax, they all look like that. And I de- just had oh, these little moments of acknowledgement of some of the craft in it. But mm. yeah, you know, I, I squirm as much now as I did then with some of the, uh, the speeches and dialogue and character stuff. You know, when you're a nine-year-old, you just want to skim past that. And I still had the same feeling as a grown-up. But, mm. you know, period details are nice. Nice to see a yeah. 70s New York, you know, looking... Like the forties, timeless, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. even the exteriors look mm. look incredible. That's um, before they cleaned it all up, it looks great. <laughs> mm. I mean, Kovacs must have—he's just coming off a run of period movies anyway. Oh my god, yeah, yeah. Paper Moon and New York, New York. So it just must have been. I did write it down because I was just so impressed with the the work that he's doing at that point. Hell's Angels on Wheels, Man Called Dagger, Psych Out, Savage Seven, Freebie and the Bean. Paper Moon, he worked on Targets, Easy Rider, The Last Movie, Five Easy Pieces, King of Marvin Gardens. Mm. <laughs> it's a pretty impressive run, isn't it? Yeah. He slowed down, though, didn't he, after that? He continued doing good work through the 70s and then into the 80s. I think when I checked IMDb, the last thing that I would profess an interest in was Say Anything, about 1989. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Which wasn't a remarkable-looking movie, but... And then throughout the 90s, it's pretty pretty much... He's one of the Close Encounters guys yeah, as well. Uh, everyone worked on Close Encounters. Yeah. So Vilmos Sigmund did the bulk of the work, but you've got Alan Davio, um, Haskell Wexler. Basically, everyone did a, a little bit of extra work on that because it just went on and on and on yeah, and on. Yeah. I think Vilmos went on to do the Deer Hunter straight off the back of it mm-hmm. or something. 
So I guess, yeah, I guess talking about the visuals is a good segue into the beginning of the film. It opens with a 1930s Universal logo. <laughs> That's nice, isn't it? Well, it is, but, but it's uh, a film set in 1946. Yeah, it's 1946 and Hell's Kitchen, which is the year of Sly's birth and mm. the place where he was born. So I think that's a little throwback there. And the opening shots are kind of desaturated almost to black and white, and mm. then you get the kind of chintzy red neon <laughs> titles. Yeah, I, I kind of got a bad feeling about this movie from the title sequence. And I, I have to say, yeah. I came in with an open mind. Yeah, okay. I knew nothing about it and was mm. prepared to like it. But the title sequence is a rooftop chase between Stallone and... It's a race. It's a proper race. A race, right, yeah. And is it the legs, the character? His name is Rat. That's Paul Mace, who was in Lords of Flatbush. After this, he did some Rockford Files, Hill Street Blues and elsewhere, mm. and then died in a car crash when he was 33. Oh, OK. Yeah, tragic. So this title sequence is the rooftop race, and it's played out over the theme tune, which is sung by Sylvester Stallone. No special problem with that. It's just that this title sequence is comprised of about three angles, which yeah, it keeps yeah. relentlessly cutting between and freezing on. Mm. And it runs out of gas really quickly. Oh, no, man. That's, and then, <laughs> this is the point where, as a nine-year-old, I was in, and I keep, I've always kept coming back to this title sequence. When I was nine, I saw this and Convoy, I think, in the same year. And after that, I was like, any film that doesn't have slow motion in, that's not a film. And this music, oh my God, when I had my first car, I made myself a mixtape for the car and I'd used a microphone to tape this off a of VHS so mm. I could play it in the car. I loved this song. And that rooftop race, I always loved that as well. Like just this idea of two men like leaping those... Yeah, I, I, it's a great idea, but you don't have the coverage to show it. You know, you want to see people racing there's, actually across the rooftops. Yeah, there's definitely a repeat on the angles. Yeah, I'll give you that. And the angles are poor angles anyway. Apart from the low angles looking up, mm. which are occasionally, you know, quite frightening, you want to see feet on rooftops. You want to see the rooftops passing by. I don't want to see yeah, yeah. constant slow motion close-ups of Sylvester Stallone's twisted face <laughs> grimacing and running towards you. Oh, it's nice because you see the characters like start out bursting with energy and by the end they're really worn down and desperate. I, I always like that uh, element of it. Yeah. And the... <laughs> The annoying thing is, as well is that it's set up as something dangerous, and this is the movie in microcosm. Mm. It's set up as something dangerous and edgy, and then it, it kind of fudges this at the end with like some low comedy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. where the guy who falls off the roof just kind of manages to hang on to some washing lines, mm. despite the other washing lines beforehand. He's just snapping, falling through yeah. them and they're snapping. But then it's a really, really bad low comedy shot, like a low angle shot know, looking up proper. without, I'm going to get you, Cosmo! Yeah, it's like, uh, it reminds me of Crime Wave, that Sam Raimi movie just has that sort of like what what a double bill that would be it's it's a movie that kind of pulls its punches at pretty much every turn yeah yeah it yeah. goes for the pg doesn't it it does yeah i guess it's handy to talk about the first act because it does kind of set the tone for the rest of the movie despite whatever else happens the next morning is a scene could you tell me what ann archer's character's called i just kept calling her ann archer because i was surprised to see an Ar ann archer in a film from the 70s <laughs> yeah yeah I think, isn't it her debut as well? Anne Archer is uh, playing the character with the inventive name of Annie. Annie. Okay. Annie. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, it's easy to remember, isn't it? So we meet Annie with some, um, I guess, does she have some sexy music behind her to introduce her as a sexy character? Maybe, yeah. I mean, it, you know, talking about the music, we've got Bill Conti. Yeah. <laughs> doing all of his uh, usual tricks, you know. Later on, we get sad Bill Conti. Yeah. Here we get sexy Bill Conti. It's... Does he, has he ever done stage shows? Because his music always reminds me of kind of like small orchestra stage show music. No, 
I can't imagine you at a small orchestra stage show either. So we meet Annie as Cosmo's following her down the street, basically harassing her. Yeah, he's pretty creepy, isn't he? Pretty touchy-feely. It's yeah. his brother's ex-girlfriend, and he's kind of pawing her, like he has some sort of claim on her. Again, I knew that I was going to be in trouble for the next hour and 45 minutes because Stallone's performance is energetic. Yeah, I think he's trying to counterpoint Rocky, isn't he? <laughs> but the problem is, the the character that he's playing and every line that he's written for this character is so unfunny and just delivered with such energy and enthusiasm as if it's the funniest thing in the world, yes. as if this is a really likeable douchebag character. It's all very first draft, isn't it? It's it's really difficult to watch, and it kind of continues that way until the last act of the film when he quietens down considerably. Mm-hmm. But most of the, the, the first half of the film, is it's almost impossible to watch him in, even interacting with people who are doing well on screen. Everything that he says is annoying. The way that he delivers it is in the same kind of in-your-face bravado sort of way. It's performance of somebody who thinks that they are automatically charming and loved. But, but that's actually... the character, isn't it? That's what the character thinks. And by the end, he has to go through this journey of self-discovery. And so he's he's changed at the end. That's it. That's he's the not arc. changed at the but end. I like really. that you observe that arc and the subtle nuance of uh, a character's uh, 180 character change. I don't know, there's there's good stuff going on on screen, but it's all built around Stallone, and you know that this is a first draft script mm-hmm. that's been rejected once, and is now just being shot off the back of yeah. the success of Rocky. It's a performance that's not really been thought through that well. You know, I guess Stallone was just so confident in himself. You know, the success of Rocky would do amazing things for your ego, and justifiably so, if you've been the underdog for so long. And you think that, yes, I have, you know, I, I Finally, am. the world's acknowledged. Yeah, the world's acknowledged me, and the world mm. loves me, and I, I, can, I can do this now. I can, yeah, you know, yeah. I can do what I want, and it's difficult to watch. Yeah, but I mean, you've kind of summed up Stallone's career there with these sort of massive uh, peaks of ego and indulgence followed by crashes after the audience has rejected him and then slowly builds himself back up again with credible work and then massive peaks of ego followed by a crash and mm. then the slow build up again you know he hasn't got much time left i don't think <laughs> he's i think he's working his way back up now isn't he oh he's got to pull one out of the bag soon hasn't he after the last blood yes yeah it was nice to see Anne archer i'd sort of forgotten that she existed yeah right and yeah but she was kind of like she was really ubiquitous throughout the late 80s mm-hmm. wasn't she early 90s yeah, she was in the Harrison Ford, Jack Ryan films, I think. Oh, she's yes, she was the wife mm. in those, wasn't she? Um, so it's nice to see her in a 70s movie. Again, a, another questionable aspect of this film, which I don't know if anyone would have noticed or done anything about, is some of the styling for a movie that's set in 1946. They do kind of look like they're heading off to Studio 54. Like Anne Archer's hair and makeup, and especially Bunches, the prostitute, yeah, yeah. the kind of peroxide prostitute, looks very much like a you know a, da- a dancer model from the late seventies. Which she was. So that's that's a little bit jarring. The next scene is where we meet Amanda Sante. The third brother is Victor Carboni, and he's played by Lee Canalito, who was actually a professional boxer. He had a pretty decent career, I think. He retired undefeated. He was a heavyweight, twenty-one for zero. 18 knockouts and he is now a trainer in Houston, Texas with his own gym and has, he's done a couple of B-movies in the 80s but I think he's essentially a boxer Sly was his manager for quite a few years and in 1985 Lee Canalito was ranked ninth in the world his boxing manager yeah. or his film manager his boxing manager 
How did he find time to manage a boxer whilst he was doing I don't it? know, maybe that's why he was only ninth and not number one. <laughs> but Sly's been around like the boxing game forever, hasn't he? He had that reality show with Sugar Ray called The Contender. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, no. I'll get you the box there for Christmas. I really liked Lee Canalito in this. Yeah, he's got a lovely presence, hasn't he? Obviously, the first scene or so, you're thinking, oh, all right, non-actor. Mm. But then he's just just fits the role perfectly. Yeah, and he stays there, doesn't he? he sort yeah. of keeps well within the parameters of the character. There's a couple of like moments that are just a little bit too childlike, especially in the climax. Mm. But yeah, yeah, I, I love him on screen. He's a big, massive bloke, but really kind of limber and delicate at the same time. But yeah, I think partly because he's a non-actor and he's just he's not performing or trying hard mm-hmm. in anything. He's just kind of there. He kind of grounds the whole thing. Mm-hmm. If I'm skimming through it, we kind of get to see their life. In 40s New York, we see Victor hauling ice all around uh, Hell's Kitchen because we're just on the era of electricity and refrigeration, but mm. a lot of people are still dependent on, on ice deliveries. Lenny working in a mortuary. Mm. This is obvious uh, thing about him being dead inside. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think one of the re- period reviews said that, <laughs> how obvious it was. We get this weird sort of nightclub that keep going back to for no reason. Is it Sticky's nightclub? Sticky's nightclub, yeah. It's, which is seemingly through a, t- a portal in time back into the 30s. Yeah, sure. I think Stallone saw They Shoot Horses, Don't They, and wanted a bit of that in the movie. Yeah, and it reminds me a bit of Mean Streets as well, that sort of yeah, the red, red wash and slow-mo and tracking along the bar and stuff, I think, yeah. Mm. But the, the scenes themselves are completely redundant do anything yeah. you know in fact the Anne Archer as much as I, I like seeing her on screen her character doesn't really have anything to do, to do in, the, in the film react yeah. to the two men yeah yeah that's it yeah it disappears off the screen yeah. by the end <laughs> yeah that's it she's not in the third act at all is yeah she? I think maybe those scenes are just there for Frank Stallone to take the stage he's the um he's the nightclub singer oh I see <laughs> I was wondering I've got one of my notes is that I was wondering why this nightclub singer was getting so much time <laughs> yeah, yeah. and why why perhaps in the second scene that he's on why Cosmo wasn't muscling up on stage and, and insisting on doing a song yeah, himself because it wouldn't have been out of place <laughs> yeah. that's it so yeah that's that's Frank Stallone also the singer in um, Rocky who's one of the guys around the uh, all drum don't remember it no. that well I tell you where you might have recognised him he's the bartender in Barfly as well right okay the one that um Chuck goes out in the alleyway to fight. I, I guess the first major scene we need to talk about, which is just so full of strangeness, is the long scene in Marne's bar, oh, yeah, the Irish okay. bar, where yeah, they all yeah. drink. I love that bar. <laughs> I like the way the bar looks. That's yeah. about as far as I can take it. What about having Tom Waits on piano? In oh, I could do without that. Yeah, okay. In fact, if Tom Waits were playing piano in a bar, I, I wouldn't go to that bar. You wouldn't, go, you wouldn't pay £200 for a ticket to I, see Tom Waits play. I wouldn't go and see Tom Waits for free. I've had his sh- stick up to here for, for the whole of my life. I'm sick of Tom Waits being on the curriculum as somebody you have to be into. I can't, I can't stand him. Didn't you like him in no. Ram Stoker's Dracula? No. Shortcuts? No. What about, what about that new Coen Brothers Western? Uh, I quite liked him in that okay, because he wasn't doing his Tom Waits, Tom Waits thing. <laughs> yeah, so Man's Bar, where we meet. Victor and, and Lenny kind of consoling themselves around a table and then talking about their wasted lives wasted lives yeah nothing's, nothing's going right for them and Cosmo's somebody's died haven't they and left a, a monkey Cosmo's got his eye on it because he sees it as a, a money making money making opportunity and the bar seems to be owned by the, the movie's villain called Stitch 
um, and his crew of stooges. They're the least threatening Irish mobsters. Least, yeah. least violent mobsters that I've ever seen it's in really anything. It's really cartoonish, isn't it? It's really bad. It's only the second time round because it keeps setting up scenes of threat mm-hmm. and you think, well, you know, all right, well, this is sort of a film for grown-ups. You expect somebody's going to get hurt. Yeah, what I really love about how ridiculous it is is that uh, Stitch walks in and goes up to the bartender he's like, give me the take, give me the night's take. And then later on he's like, I own this bar. So like, why don't you just like go into the office and do it, do it properly? Why does he have to lean across the bar and threaten the, the bartender, his own employee? Have you noticed, like, I, I didn't read any reviews of this. I, I, I know you flagged up Pauline Kael's yeah, review. I was like, do not read Pauline yeah. Kael's review until you've watched the I film. I deliberately didn't read any reviews of this until after I'd seen it the first time. And somebody else said that the villain's more like something out of Dick Tracy. yeah. Then I watched it a second time, and it's like, and it, and it struck me. Why didn't I notice this before? Like Stitch, Stitch dresses up in a ridiculous '30s costume, mm-hmm. like a black suit with a big fat red tie. Yeah. But all of his goons are wearing identical black leather and black berets, yeah. and it's just like this is the Adam West Batman show. <laughs> yeah, or uh, Jack Nicholson's uh, Batman, isn't it? Yeah. Like, the rest of his crew are all kind of in identical. It was. It's just, I guess, crap is the word. Well, I think it's supposed to be a bit fun, isn't it? But the, the tone of the film is all over the place. And I think that's kind of where, these... where its failings are as a, as a grown-up watching it compared to where its thrills are as a nine-year-old watching it. This this sets them up as villains. And okay, so there's there's Frankie, the kind of grotesque wrestler character. That's Terry Funk, man. We should uh, take time to pay some respect to Terry Funk. He's from a wrestling dynasty, the Funks. Did you like him in this? He has like my favourite line in the film when they're talking about wrestling for nine thousand dollars and he's like for nine thousand oh it's probably better if we just play it for nine grand i'd tear my obnoxious overbearing smelly ignorant sweet mother's face off yeah i really like him in this so it's a shame he didn't do more like acting i can't really judge him and give him the respect that he no doubt deserves on the basis of this because he's just made to look and seem so grotesque i mean he's he's constantly sweaty but most people are sweaty in this in this bar scene cosmo challenges stitch and by extension frankie to an arm wrestling match with victor in order to win the monkey and this arm wrestling match which seems to go on for about 15 minutes and has no tension whatsoever because it has kind of like light entertainment music under it but you know what i really like the uh, the filmmaking in this scene i like it that it goes completely quiet and you're just looking at the faces and the characters in the space yeah but it's i thought it's, that was really nicely done really measured it was one of my favorite things in it on but like, it's review. got it's got the the really weird bad movie music and then it's got the long dissolves between people's reactions, yeah, yeah. which just makes everything seem really sluggish. And reactions are really stagey as well. What I was trying to get to was that Terry Funk is made not just to look sweaty, mm. but to look as if he's actually slimy, like a, like like the alien or something. Yeah, sure, and there's, sure. there's literally slime yeah, on his ears, yeah. and they've overdone it with the Vaseline. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And he looks so revolting in this mm. that it's like it feels really bewilderingly it's grotesque. grotesque yeah. yeah. Other gems from this scene is somebody pointing out how anachronistic Sly Stallone's long hair and earring are, okay. and he just says, "Oh, it's my trademark." Yeah, I says, think... well, it's your trademark, but you know, I think in '40s Hell's Kitchen, you'd have been you would have been vilified as a homosexual, <laughs> yeah. not just as a a likable oddball. It's another one of uh, Sly's trademarks is the kind of repeated catchphrase throughout a film hoping that it would stick and become like some sort of Clint Eastwood legendary line. Uh, he has one in Dread. Do you remember in Judge Dread where he keeps saying, I knew you were going to say that. 
Uh, yeah, because the source material doesn't provide enough catchphrases <laughs> yeah, that are already it. embedded in the yeah, public yeah, mind. Yeah. Gaze into the fist of dread. Yeah. And then my, my favourite, just the little, apart from the, the odd, odd grotesque but quite cute little monkey, is the way that the scene ends after all of this with this kind of long, slow push-in on Stallone as he's just talking gibberish, just just this non-stop rubbish that any other editor just would have cut out <laughs> yeah, the scene. Yeah, sure. um, as if that's kind of like, you know, the, the highlight or denouement of the whole scene. I'm going to wrap it up with some, I'm just going to rap. Yeah, yeah, that's if I'm just going to improvise. Yeah, yeah, it has that sort of freestyle improvisation. You know, sometimes I wonder about nature. Now, me, myself, I'm a rough and nervy guy. But my brother there, who should be a real rough pecker, is about as nasty as a daisy. <laughs> Don't you guys ever wonder about nature? Yeah, nature's a funny, funny thing. <laughs> hey, anybody want to buy a monkey? Gucci, Gucci, goo. You're going to be worth a fortune. Cut is what it should have had. And then immediately after this, this is one of the things I was talking about before, you have a scene with Victor on the step eating ice cream. Stitch kind of comes up and says, you and me have got business. You you cheated Frankie in there. And it's like, well, he didn't cheat Frankie, one fair and square. But is, is this a threat? Is now is Victor now going to get roughed up or is there the threat? Yeah. But he just wanders off and nothing happens mm-hmm. and there is no threat from these villains. Yeah. It's it's just it's bonkers. Puzzling, yeah. puzzlingly lame. Yeah, yeah. So we're still wading through the first act, really. Um, we get a scene with Victor and Susan, who's his Japanese girlfriend. I guess. Cosmo's making fun of her and calling her a chink, but then he's corrected. I think told yeah, her she's yeah. Japanese. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, she's lovely. She's a lovely character. Mm. She's sort of the the kind, protective soulmate for Victor. But again, talking I'm talking about leaving Hell's Kitchen and then getting a houseboat together in Jersey and. Mm-hmm forging a life so I guess she's there as his motivation because he's you know this idea that he's a little bit simple that maybe he hasn't got any other motivation but she's just kind of they just kind of meet in an alleyway a couple of times in the movie and we know nothing about read the dictionary read the dictionary I mean we understand that they're both sort of childlike Mm. but I don't really know anything about them beyond that Mm. again this is knowing the whole film I don't really see why she's there because she doesn't factor into the third act at all. Well, apart from him winning all the money means that he's able to fulfil his promise to her of... But, I mean, that's off-screen. I mean, It's off-screen, yeah. She literally disappears from the film, as do all uh, yeah. the other women. Yeah, yeah, totally. Which is an odd thing to do, given... It's not about the women, it's about men. Naked men wrestling each other. That's all this film's about. It's what we're building up towards, you know. <laughs> fine talk about women as much as you like but at some point we're going to strip off to our pants in the pouring rain and roll around like we're supposed to and then we come to a very strange scene which had me pausing the movie afterwards and looking at imdb at the editor's track record there's there's a lengthy scene in the middle of the night at the brother's basement apartment which is very, very, very run down. It's cockroaches and everything. Um, Victor's up singing to his pet bird, Ella. He's up early, isn't he, to do his ice oh, paper round. That's yeah. why he's up at dawn, to um, del- deliver the ice. Singing a song to Bella to the tune of Frere Jacques, just singing it interminably in this kind of idiotic loop over and over, which is sort of annoying the other brothers, but not as much as you would think. Yeah. Not as much as it annoys the viewer. Yeah, definitely. And the scene seems to go on forever. It, it it feels like a full scene that could be cut down to about three or four shots. Mm. And that's what made me wonder about the editing on this. It's yeah, like, right, right. Is Stallone so in love with this that, that it has to go on for minutes? Mm-hmm. Like There's a whole, a whole thing set up with cockroaches on the table and then Stallone grabbing a bat and 
and whacking them and then you see the aftermath of that as well and apparently uh, it's an interview with Sly talking about how Universal interfered with the edit of this film and they forced him to cut out 40 scenes <laughs> and he said he managed to restore 10 of them for the TV version oh, <laughs> so dear. I'm not even sure which version we saw but, dear yeah. god Forty. well they must surely have been in the third act mm, they must yeah, have maybe. been but the third act is all the fight like the last 15 minutes yeah but there, just... there, must, there must have been some sort of back and forth between I, mm. I, I can't imagine there's room for another 40 scenes <laughs> yeah, can you imagine yeah, um, and the scene just kind of goes on forever and is is a real endurance test on every level. It's it's like the singing is like Chinese water torture. Yeah, yeah. And I can see that for you know for a couple of verses. It's that bloody awful shot of the monkey tied up as well. Which it's like, really hard to watch. Yeah, that's, isn't it? yeah, it's really uncomfortable. Which was apparently cut out for UK release by the BBFC. Uh-huh. Yeah, fair enough. And then we, as you said, we were talking about these things before we started recording. There's, we're into another montage. An- another sly montage. He's getting to grips now with his uh, Eisensteinian montages <laughs> as we see all the characters going about their daily business, including Sly trying to be the. Uh, organ grinder to the monkey who's refusing to perform. I really like the monkey's anger in this. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. really genuinely yeah. vicious, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, he fired his agent just after this, I think, that monkey. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a, there was a really puzzling shot in this, and I didn't realise quite who or what was going on. We see something which I guess is put in as a setup for something that pays off later on, but is still very puzzling. We see Anne Archer um, moulding clay sculpting oh yeah yeah but she's kind of obviously she's not she's got her hair pulled back and she's wearing something over her hair and she's yeah, not yeah. made up and you think was that who, who yeah, was that, that it's so weird that isn't it yeah. and then later on when Armand Asante comes to see her and she's sculpted his head <laughs> she sculpted this oversized <laughs> head of his which is okay that's what the shot was it's setting so up so peculiar but isn't it yeah I mean what's her job because the only way she seems to earn money is by dancing with sad fellows dancing for a, for a dime or something yeah yeah so it seems very weird that she would be like sculpting it's just yeah. a, a, a script that needed a rewrite by somebody mm. who knew what they were doing yeah yeah I guess at the end of this montage we get to meet uh, Bunch, yep. who is the hooker with the heart of gold. Yeah, yeah. Introduced with sexy saxophone music as the camera pans up her legs. Thanks, Bill. Just in case I didn't know what was going on, <laughs> Bill Conti's there just to underscore it for me. Again, looking like she's just off to meet um, Mick Jagger and David Bowie before they head off to, to, get, to get in on the guest list. <laughs> Who's the actress? That is Joyce Ingalls, and she was a model, and I couldn't find out anything more about her other than that she's named in a slice divorce that happened shortly after this film. Ah, uh, okay. Mm. I really like her. Yeah, she's really she's good, isn't great. she? She's mm. great. She's just an absolutely, again, perhaps because it's... She's a bit Karen Black, isn't she? She sort of has that, you know, look that somebody that's in the moment, but also, like, trying to work out yeah. what's going on in her life. And it's such a such a quiet, naturalistic performance that she just kind of glows compared to yeah, everyone yeah. else around who's trying very, very There's hard. There's a lovely scene, I think it's a Christmas present scene, where she's, like, oh. just tears of joy mm. as she's just acknowledging somebody seeing her properly for the first time mm. it's again it's difficult to understand why she's in love with Cosmo mm-hmm. something to explain that would have been useful but I guess we just have to kind of go with it I mean mm-hmm. so I guess after about what feels like about 40 minutes we arrive at Paradise Alley yeah um, Cosmo takes Lenny there to, to try and cheer him up or yeah. something and it seems to be again it's one of those things that feels like it's influenced by they shoot horses don't they it's um, kind of like a depression era wrestling ring bar wrestling ring speakeasy type thing although again it's 1946 there's an odd sort of repeated bit of dialogue here where you know Cosmo's described Victor as being able to haul ice up 
five flights of stairs without yeah, losing yeah. his without blowing his breakfast yeah. and then he says the exact same thing here mm-hmm. um again a rewrite would have done wonders but yeah it's i guess we're, we're meeting everyone here at the paradise alley and this is where things start to start to happen joe spinell as mm-hmm. the ringmaster yeah, again yeah. having another another flavor of sleaze to proceedings <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah he's brilliant isn't he you know not many people can pull off putting on a clown suit and a clown nose and still be a little bit kind of threatening and, <laughs> and funny at the same time and we meet i think the the most kind of affecting character in the film big glory the wrestler frank mccray tell me more um you might recognize him from uh, such films as last action hero lock up rocky 2 he basically plays uh, in the sly movies he plays a similar sort of character and in the other movies he plays the loudmouth cop chief chief of police okay yeah yeah big glory is the kind of incumbent wrestler isn't he yeah he's he's the guy who's he's he's the guy to beat at paradise alley nothing much really comes to the scene just introduces the place doesn't it and sets up the idea of victor fighting there yeah so what yeah so basically um cosmo sets up the idea of victor fighting there lenny says he doesn't really fancy and that his brother's going to get hurt and so cosmo just goes and gets victor and brings him back in and makes him fight that night Uh, happens like straight away and he's in the ring like 25 minutes after Cosmos had the idea. Mm. There's a very interesting scene following this. Um, it's a short confrontation between Lenny and Cosmo where, um, as things stand at the moment, Cosmo's thinking of using his brother as his latest money-making scheme. Um, and Lenny is the conscience who doesn't want to do that. Um, and they have a, like a confrontation in Backstreet. And it's a very, very strange scene because of its absolute kind of Stallone vanity. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's like it should be equal weighting given to either of these characters but most of the scene just plays on Cosmo yeah that's it and it tracks tracks back and then tracks back into him as he's kind of shouting uh, yeah it's his big kind of Brando moment isn't it it's 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 pretty flat though it's bizarre it's it's kind of like you know, you're waiting to see Lenny's reaction and you're just looking at his back because mm. it's like a two-shot with Lenny with his back to us and, and Cosmo facing us. Um, and, the, and then the, that kind of plays out and Lenny turns around to face camera and it tracks following him as he mm. walks away and Cosmo disappears into the distance. You think, okay, well, you've given some waiting to yeah, the actor. Yeah. But then Lenny kind of goes off screen and the, as you say, the camera tracks back in onto, onto Stallone as he just keeps talking. Mm. It's like, this is so transparent. Oh, yeah. I just wonder how Asante felt when he saw the edit. <laughs> Maybe this is all those things that you don't like about Armand Asante. Maybe they come from this experience. It's <laughs> <laughs> sown him with uh, so much resentment. Lenny and Anna Archer are reconciled very quickly. Yeah, I can't even, I can't even remember what, what was happening here. Basically... Uh, all I wrote down was soapy love subplot. And the whole scene ends with this bizarre freeze frame of them kissing or, or not quite kissing. Mm. And then a very, very, very slow fade through to something else. Yeah. yeah again, it doesn't work, but yeah. it's just, it's there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we get this weird, this whole sort of mid-act love triangle is really kind of unnecessary and drags the film Mm. I think it's like an anchor just dragging it slowly to a standstill, which is really frustrating. You have, um, I've got a little note here as an aside that Sly wrote a scene with him and Tom Waits, and he actually had the audacity to call Tom Waits' character Mumbles. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're both talking, and it is one of those like, come on guys, like, enunciate. Coming up soon is a big chunk of exterior shots. Yeah, yeah. Which lend the film like this kind of visual gravitas. Yeah, that, it is great. That, that I can imagine if I'd watched it when I was very young, I'd be thinking, oh, yeah, New York, Mean Streets, mm-hmm. this is a raw movie. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it's a great sort of grey, grainy exterior shots of, mm-hmm. of 
And the whole thing of like pulling down the ladder from the uh, fire escape and mm. climbing up into the windows, all of those things that you see in movies. But this, yeah, you get those nice wides and you really yeah. feel the space, don't you? And all the, you know, it's period detail. All the cars are parked up along the side of the road. It all looks you know, really authentic. I'm sure there'll be more to come, but I've said as much as I perhaps should about the character of Cosmo and how insanely written it is. <laughs> but the the shot where he's confronting insanely written. <laughs> but the shot where he's confronting Anne Archer with his jealousy and anger because she's gotten back with Lenny. Yeah. It's, it's it's a childlike puzzling scene. Yeah. Even watching it the first time, you're like, what right do you have to be jealous? And why is the film giving you a grandstanding soapbox to do this? Yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. Peculiar. And again, there's a scene immediately following. It's one of these fabulous exteriors with Cosmo and Bunchy on the rooftop. Mm. What a great looking rooftop! Yeah, yeah, it's cool, isn't it? I'm surprised he didn't have like a pigeon coop or something just to <laughs> sort of finish it off, you know. Again, it's actually, it's... you know what? I think he does that in Lords of Flatbush, has a pigeon coop a la Brando. But again, the scene with Bunchy is, is another pointless scene where he's just venting his anger and jealousy at the woman who least deserves to hear about it. Yeah, yeah. And she even says at one point, This is getting stupid, and mm. you know the viewer nods yeah yeah that's it quite a good scene I think, yeah is where he takes victor to see big glory i wasn't expecting this scene to be as good as it was mm. it was so that's frank mccray i think he brings so much like yeah. soul to it doesn't he? but even even stallone dials it down in the scene mm. you know he's, it's, i know the motivation is that cosmo doesn't want to be there and wants to get out as quickly as possible but mm. he says very little and he seems quite respectful yeah yeah and the and the the bond between Big Glory and Victor is I thought it was quite touching. Yeah, yeah. And just that line of glory. It's like I'm your future, isn't he? Basically. Yeah. But that that line saying, you know, this is this is my place where I stay. You can come down and talk anytime. Yeah, yeah. So that's really sweet. Yeah, yeah. yeah quite moved. So we get this stuff with Cosmo trying to talk Victor into becoming a, a pro wrestler. Cosmo has failed to make any money off his monkey, so he's going to exploit his simple brother, and then. Lenny is supposed to be the brother that talks them out of it, but slowly comes on board. And so this sort of middle act is mostly about convincing Victor to fight when he doesn't want to. He's quite a peaceful giant. But his career as an ice hauler is coming to an end with the advent of electric refrigeration. And people don't want big blocks of ice delivered every morning to keep their food cool. And after lugging a block of ice up 16 floors and not throwing up his breakfast, he reaches the top of a really long stairwell. But it is basically an excuse to have a fabulous slow motion shot. Beautiful slow motion shot of like a one foot square cube of ice being thrown down three flights of stairs. And, and exploding as it hits yeah, the landing. Yeah. I mean, beautiful lighting here, Laszlo. That's, it's fabulous, isn't it, as it explodes. I, I've, I've like watched this twice and then I ran it back to watch it again. It's like, I don't know. There's a key light in there somewhere, yeah, yeah, yeah. somewhere hidden, like behind the camera or offset, mm. which is just set to, to catch the ice as it explodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks amazing. It's so fabulous. Practicing by the docks, Lenny turns up. The training like, scene. It's not quite the sly training montage that we're used to, but mm. you know, it's it's quite nice. I like how rough and dirty it is. It's like pick that up, throw it in the water, bend that pipe. You know, it's really shit training. And Lenny turns up and seems to have undergone some mild moral reversal and seems to be quite slimy and spiv-like doesn't he? Well, that's it. But he's back with his girlfriend so that's ah, his uh, confidence know, the negative boosted, effect of women on <laughs> <laughs> So we're heading into a big fight montage now I guess which highlights a lot of the script problems for me I think it almost shows that you don't even need a script when you have like beautiful images. You can just layer them up and sort of sit back and enjoy. Oh, it's like being, it's like being in the room with Stallone <laughs> in 1976. <laughs> the craft of filmmaking, the purity of cinema. 
Uh, yeah, uh, it's Victor's has to do what forty fights or something at Paradise it's, Alley. It's his. It's quite quickly his debut and then entire career, pretty much, isn't it? In yeah. one one sequence. In one long sequence. The brevity this... of it, the precision of the filmmaking, the craft. Yeah, I can't help thinking that I'd be more invested in Victor's fighting career if it was spread out more over the film. If instead of wasting too so much time on on female characters that aren't going anywhere, which sounds terrible, but they're not going anywhere. If somehow they were worked into a story whereby they cared about Victor and they cared about what was happening to the people instead of it all happening within a montage. <laughs> yeah, I mean you literally get like Lenny's complete reversal. Complete of reversal. He's and counting the money, isn't he? Like a proper yeah, and he's, Scrooge and he's dressed up like a '30s gangster yeah, with yeah. tie pins and all sorts going on. Sly his hair slicked back. Cheering to shaking his head by the end of the montage, and this all happens within a montage. And this is basically what should be happening within the second act. It should be the film. Yeah, should be that the triangle of the three brothers, and one realizing that he's exploited and put his brother in a vulnerable position, and the other one realizing that his capitalist, yeah, you know, ambitions are jeopardizing the the dynamic. That should be the film. And following this, I mean, I'm going to leap forward slightly. we get a scene where um, Anne Archer breaks up with Lenny because she doesn't like what he's become or he uh, he's prepared to leave her behind. What is it? He says, I'm climbing and you don't yeah. have a head for heights or yeah, something like that. Yeah, random, isn't it? If you want us to feel something about that, why not space it out throughout the movie so that she gets to see him change gradually? I mean, I know it's, it's again, this is like script writing 101 and it would result in a boring movie. Mm-hmm. But why not structure it that way instead of explore it yeah. before you commit it to paper? Yeah. It's it would be a boring movie, but at the same time, it would make a lot more sense than these two things happening like mm-hmm. you know like that. Weird. <laughs> but you like the montage? I love the montage. Yeah, all those. Uh, for me, that's the sort of the meat of the film is all those huge men leaping around the rings, slamming each other. I just I find that really me- mesmerizing. Mm. Ted DiBiase's in there. Actually, one of the uh, one of the wrestlers. Another. Yeah. Okay, don't worry about that. <laughs> don't worry about Ted DiBiase. Yeah, I I just really love that sequence. You know, like in an era of tightly choreographed fight sequences that are sort of surgically precise, and I think I'm quite numb to that stuff now. I still find this sort of organic reality of those huge men just lifting each other up and slamming down. I just I find it it's like it's really authentic. And you can f- it feels like hard work and yeah, it feels painful. I I don't know anything about wrestling apart from what my elder relatives used to watch yeah, in the in sure. the early eighties mm. on Saturday afternoons. Yeah, yeah. There's there's surely more to it than picking people up over your head and throwing them to the ground. Yeah, yes. I mean, you know, there's obviously the Grecian wrestling, which is what we see in the Olympics. You know, that's the kind of foundations for the sport. And you know, I'm not a wrestling historian. I don't know anything about this sort of transition from when it was in the kind of the back of bars and when it was in the circuses and theme parks and that kind of thing where you just go in and wrestle some some bloke in the ring to the point where it becomes mass entertainment and I'm hoping that this sort of era is uh, you know the last of the kind of real street fighters mm. um, we get a weird little interlude with um, Christmas with Stitch and his gang yeah I mean it's it's all very strange but there's two things I really like about this the end of the th- second act I like seeing Tom Waits and Terry Funk singing Christmas songs together that just every time that makes me giggle Mm. and I love the stuff with Old Glory as well and where Sly takes him out drinking and 
they sort of I mean it's carnage they smash the whole street up but uh yeah I, th- I thought he, by the end of that scene he's really like credible as somebody that's just he's run out of life basically I, I thought the stuff with Stitch and his gang was peculiar when I watched it the first time I quite liked the sort of the quiet moment between Frankie and Stitch you know when he's asking him do you think I look older and that sort <laughs> yeah, of thing yeah. it's, like, oh, it's like friendship here um, and Stitch has bought him a robe hasn't he like a wrestling robe so we yeah. know that he's he- heading towards the ring at some point and it just says kill all over it but it's in like sort of the, <laughs> the colours the Irish colours sort of shamrocks and yeah it's, it's really sweet I was worried, uh, we talked about it before, but the, the scene where Lenny and Anna Archer break up, I really was worried that this was setting it up for like a, a reconciliation romance between Cosmo and Anna Archer by the end of the movie. But I mean, it's unfortunate that Anna Archer drops out of the movie at this point completely, yeah, yeah. like without a trace, but it's less unfortunate than that happening. Lesser of two Lesser evils. Lesser of two evils. <laughs> I liked the Christmas scene, as you said before, with, with Cosmo and Bunch. Uh, and it does suggest that Cosmo's kind of like committed to her now. Yeah, he's point. talking about taking her away, isn't he? I think he's yeah. got his eyes on the money as well. They all have now at this point. Mm. But yeah, you're saying that the, the scenes with Cosmo and Glory, the, the Christmas fun hijinks thing, mm-hmm. I really wanted to like it. I didn't think it would be quite as crazy as it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were thundering down the street, smashing down like street lamps and, it, and causing like but it, but it was property clun- damage. Clunkily made. Um, I mean, you get the scene with with Stitch and his gang kind of singing Christmas songs Mm -hmm. to establish that they're in their bar. But then you come back to that again, and you don't need to do you don't need to have that establishing scene. You could just before the truck's about to come in the window, cut to them there singing a song for a couple of lines, and then it comes in. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it would have paid off. Maybe they needed that shot to bridge some other. (laughs) And there's you know with with the truck smashing up the fronts of people's. Like you know, those banisters on on stoops are actually made of of stone. They're not yeah, made yeah. of wood, like Pot the truck. Stone, yeah. With the truck kind of barreling through these wooden banisters, which are mm. actually stone. And mm. but then again, this this movie's so kind of like toothless that Cosmo and Glory drive the truck into the window of Stitch's bar, and Stitch just stands there. Nothing ever happens Grr, as a result. I'll get you. Yeah, it turns yeah. around and throttles his. Well, I say girlfriend, but you know one of the women in the bar oh yeah I forgot that and nothing nothing <laughs> yeah. comes of it yeah, you think they'd good. be out there with guns and knives shooting and, and yeah yeah and they get plenty of time to, to get off a shot and I, I liked the scene with Glory's suicide mm. which reminds me of the elephant man you know when you reach that point where you're probably going to be happy for the last time in your life yeah yeah but it was kind of drawn out and I felt that the jumping onto the rubbish barge was just a humiliation too far for mm-hmm. me it was it was really grim that yeah yeah and that Cosmo realizes after he's jumped that first time and then laughs when he's when his fall is broken but then he jumps in again and mm. just does nothing apart from feel sad well yeah I mean he stays there like until the sun comes up the next day and we have Bill Conti's sad music playing underneath just in case you're not sure what's going on mm. so I mean what is there what else is there to do okay I guess you you're automatically straight through to the to the big fight now aren't you you set up the gambling for this game and then this this wrestling match and then you're into it. We get the um, the negotiation. So the big match is uh, Thumper versus Victor and Stitch is very upset that his window's been broken. So he wants to wager more than $500 and uh, Victor offers the full nine grand and that's where we get that amazing line from Terry Funk. You can't argue with that, the quality <laughs> of that writing. 
Um, is is somebody else? Is there is there an intermediary hand, handling the money on this? Is somebody else like taking the money and holding well, you'd it? You'd hope it... it's uh, you know Spinelli maybe at Paradise Alley. I'm I'm hoping it is, and I'm hoping that the film proves that because yeah, well we'll come to that. Maybe it's honor honor amongst thieves. Yeah, well, so this is a big fight. Um, it's pouring with rain, and the rain is leaking into Paradise Alley and the the ring. The ring, yeah. That the square thing with the ropes on is called a ring, Matthew. <laughs> the ring is um, waterlogged. There's a huge puddle in the middle. Um, there's stock thunder and lightning sound effects coming mm-hmm. through from the outside world. Uh, this is a big fight with all no the electricity's time. on. All, yeah. the, all the lights are on. <laughs> no. it's, it's probably the most hazardous wrestling match in history. There's no time limit. There's no rules um, for this fight. Yeah, I guess it's basically the fight that goes on forever, isn't it? Yeah, it's just a huge, long montage. Huge, dreamy montage. I really, I really love this last five. You know, for the reasons I was talking about before, just the fact that it, it kind of feels like a long, massive effort for the men in the ring. Like it's hard work, and they push and they push and they push, which is frustrating because the, the sort of climax of the scene undoes all of that. But you know, when you're in the ring with them, I just, I've, I really like their physicality and how hard they have to work at this fight and. I love. There's a scene where Terry Funk gets thrown out of the ring, and he just like pushes the crowd away, takes one step onto the side of the ring, leaps over the ropes, bounces once, and then does a flying drop kick on uh, Victor. And like the athleticism of of the man is so impressive, you know, because they are these massive slabs of meat. So to see them be, you know, so light of foot and so precise, I, I yeah. I've, Still find it quite breathtaking. As somebody who's less spellbound by that, I found it went on a long, long time. It does go on forever. And again, the moves all seem to be the same move. There's a couple of like... There's a, there's a triple cut in there, isn't there? There's, yeah, there's a lot of, I wouldn't say double actions, but there's mm. a lot of kind of cuts to emphasise mm-hmm. what are effectively the same. I'm going to pick this guy up and throw him down yeah, in the water it. in slow motion. And then you've got Bill Conti again, just reaffirming how difficult it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've got notes. I've got my notes about this fight and then on the next page it just says the end <laughs> yeah right and that's it yeah it, it's and sort it's... of you know this kind of epic battle grinds on and the men are sort of ground down and then it's almost over and then it sort of descends into this kind of pantomime chaos as all the characters are in the ring and What's one the... of them's wearing women's clothes and when, it yeah, just it's, 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 like... it's a complete shambles if we take it finale. step by step I don't want... I don't want to, I want to brush over it. <laughs> I don't want to point, do it step by step. At some point, like Joe Spinell jumps in and, and calls foul. Yeah. But this is a fight with no rules. Yeah. There's no fouls. All right. And then I, I think, think Victor yeah. menaces well, him. Yeah, or it's something. because um, Frankie punches him after the bell's rung. So that's uh, and then they just say, okay, Victor's won. And then the the gangsters are like, no, think again. He's like, okay, this guy's won. And then there's a big fight and all the brothers are in and the gang and flick knives and women's clothes. and Yeah, somebody pulls off Stitch's trousers and he's wearing suspenders, um, which um, it, it, it lends another dimension to the scene earlier where they were all together for Christmas and there's that bonding. And you think, all right, so, okay, so Stitch is... Sec- I, I don't know what's going on there. Um, I also think it's a bad move because unless the money's in escrow somewhere, if you humiliate the person who owes you money who, yeah, has, yeah, yeah. who doesn't follow the rules, then you, you, they've just lost their money. Yeah, sure. They've won, but they've lost their money there. Mm. 
all the conflicts between the brothers are wrapped up within one kind of laughing, cheering exchange, yeah, yeah. which makes no fucking sense. I know, it's, it's the worst. The whole thing about, you know, why, well, why did you leave it for, till the 22nd round? Because mm. I was born on the 22nd. Mm. What? What? <laughs> yeah. Huh? Wait um, a second. Yes, because like, it feels like you're supposed to know that. Like, yeah. Oh, sorry, he was born when? What difference does it make? And you're thinking, alright, this, this must have been re-edited, okay, by the studio, but there's no amount of re-editing can make that be not yeah, an intentional ending unless they cut out 40 scenes of Victor's birthdays throughout the years yeah and then that's that's the end that is the end nice and traditional freeze frame ending of people hugging in the ring yeah and then you go back to um, I think it's a freeze frame of the race on the rooftops don't you uh, well then it goes back, so you obviously stop the movie straight away because then it goes through a, a, a freeze frame montage of shots throughout the entire film mm. leading right back up to the climactic moment I, I didn't stay for the <laughs> credits no alright um, well you've been a really good sport <laughs> I've taken yeah, the I piss mean, out of the movie know, that you recommended it, I was hoping that you'd like, I was find hoping, some joy I was hoping that because you recommended some, it, it in had, some of the montages some... I thought you'd be like okay there's some nicely edited uh, sequences there and they're not kind of you know the fight scenes that we're used to there's something kind of elegant and operatic and you know mm. I won't say over the top but I'm just setting myself up for a, a joke that you're not going to get the, the, the question we traditionally ask ourselves at the end of this is would you recommend this oh yeah 100% who you'd recommend it? Yeah. I'd recommend I, it to I would honestly, the world I honestly recommend it to anybody who liked 70s movies and that particular style of photography it's an interesting counterpoint to the rest of 1970s cinema no, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend anybody watch it, but with the sound turned down and some good music on in the background. Because <laughs> photographically, it's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. really great it's to look at. Yeah. But in the same way, you know, I like Spielberg, but mm. I couldn't recommend 1941 for anything beyond the photography oh, yeah. and yeah, the visuals. Yeah. So I would say the same of that. I mean, I would never recommend it, but I'd say if you're going to watch it, just, mm -hmm. just either turn it down or off. But don't you in. think, like, with this part of the, um, the appeal would be <laughs> making somebody sit through... You know, Sly singing and his kind of you know roller coaster performance. No, I mean, is, I is another word for terrible. If it, I think, if it hadn't been Sly and if it hadn't been off the back of Rocky, if it had just been like a freakish movie, you could recommend it as kind of a camp classic. But the fact that it exists in that continuum and you know where it's coming from, and you just, you just, I'm just shaking my head throughout, going, oh, <laughs> yeah. it's that pure vanity project where everyone involved, apart from the person who's spearheading it, knows it's a bad idea, but it's just got to be done. Yeah, I think uh, at the time, one of the uh, period reviews was from Time magazine, and Frank Rich said, As an exercise in egomania, Paradise Alley almost puts Barbara Streisand's Star is Born to shame. <laughs> <laughs> but then, uh, reading in uh, a biography of Stallone, it says, you know, the thing that people forget is that Star is Born made over $100 million, and this flops. Like, Star is Born is not bad either. You watched it recently, didn't you? Yeah, I've got no argument with the Star is Born. I'm completely um, agnostic on Barbara Streisand. I, <laughs> okay. I, I know almost nothing of her sure, work, sure. and so. But I went in, and there's a couple of like big numbers that she does, where you like, I can see why she's a megastar now. Mm -hmm. I can kind of see this, yeah. Paradise Alley was released in 1978. Can you think of other films that came out in that year? 
when you see the sort of menu for 1978 you see why it didn't reach an audience well I can see that it didn't reach an audience on its own merits <laughs> not because of the competition oh, no, no. <laughs> what it was, was, it was this dwarf. you know one of uh, Sly's reasons for its failure was something to do with it being released in November and his mum's astrology chart said that that was a bad time to release a movie right wasn't Superman out around that Superman, time Superman yeah so 78 you had Convoy Superman The Gauntlet The Duelists Days of Heaven Sorcerer, Deer Hunter, The Driver, Blue Collar, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That's a good year. Yeah, that's a great year. No, I think it, it lives and dies and dies on its own merits. Mm-hmm.